ideal. Many people think that the best way to escape war is to dwell upon its horror. In the end, it's our ideal. Many people think that the best way to escape war is to dwell upon its horror. Thank you for all tuning in to Up Close with Monique McNeil. I'm your host, Monique McNeil, and today I have a very special guest on the line with us today. I have Nancy V. Brown on the line with us today. Thank you so much for coming and spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I know you're a very, very busy woman, but we're going to very um, touch base a little bit on the, you know, I don't know, all you guys out there had watched the Oscars um, this past week. And what brings me to speak about um, the issue of, of alopecia. As we know, Jada Pinkett Smith is struggling and battling um, the illness uh, and the disease of alopecia. And, you know, I know we're going to have an even bigger show and really dive in depth um, to alopecia and um, its cause and its effects. But I just thought that you were be you would be an expert to have on the show today because you are a master hairstylist. Um, you are a certified hair restoration, uh, medical hair restoration. Um, you are a coach, um, a spiritual uh, guidance coach, and you just really have an in-depth understanding of um, of this disease, and you've seen. Throughout your career, you're talking plus 25, 30 years of being in the hair um, industry and not just being, you know, a stylist, but actually being um, someone who really took into the medical side of, of treatment and how, we, how to care for our scalp and our hair, which we don't really see that a lot, in, especially uh, for black people um, in this inter- industry. Um, going beyond just trying to perm and, you know, do all those chemical, you, your, your approach is more holistic. You don't really like to uh, utilize chemicals and do pulling on the hair and, you know, all the things that are bad for our scalps. And it's because of your up-close um, experience with this disease of, of alopecia. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. That is correct. And thank you for the wonderful introduction. I appreciate it. I agree with you. Um, you know, when people lose their hair, they go through a lot of different, so it's, it's just a process. It's a process. Your emotions are up, they're down. All of that, it affects how your hair starts to fall out. When you don't know where to go, you don't know who to speak with, right. who to, you know, out, how, who to share what's going on with. And then you get this shocking news. You're already panicking. It's shocking. Your nerves are bad. Uh, you already have other personal things going on. And then on top of that, you don't know what to do next. Right. So having that support system, someone to say, hey, you're going through this. You know, you're not alone. You know, you're not alone. No, I may not be going through experiencing that right this minute, but I have some resources or I have some uh, services that can help you through your process okay. and and being able to comfort that person because how you react and how 
your nerves and all of that, your body reacts, it affects your hair. That's right. Your hair will fall out faster. Your hair will, um, you know, it'll just, you'll have, you'll be like, my hair is not growing. Mm -hmm. All of this affects your body, how you react, how your emotions are, are, um, are driving you. And so I normally just tell people, I mean, I personally, I went through hair loss. Mine was different. Um, I was young and um, I went to a hairstylist. The hairstylist was like, hey, I put some lightener in your hair. And I used to love my hair. I was all about my hair, right. always at the shop, getting my hair done. And uh, I trusted the stylist. I said, is that, is that bleach? And, she, uh, and he said, no, it's lightener. And I was like, okay, I mean, Hey, I trust you because you're a stylist, right? right? So I let him put the lightener in my hair a little bit in the front. And I loved it so much um, that I wanted more. So then I had him add a few highlights. Well, he put a lot of highlights and uh, I started to notice my hair started breaking. Now he told me to use hot oil treatments and I followed the steps. But as I uh, was doing these treatments, my hair just continued to fall, and I didn't see that the issue was getting better. It was only getting worse. So I started to panic, and I started to worry. And I remember um, going to the hair store, the beauty supply store, and buying uh, hair wax and, you know, that's the track and glue and uh, sticking the hair in, you know, to cover up the issue. I just, that was my emergency 911. I know how to put some glue, some, you know, I I'm, put some glue over it. Right, which is more chemicals. And so I started, right, I started doing that. And at first it was great, you know, it looked cute. But then when I had to take it out at the beginning, you know, this was the first time. Mm -hmm. It was so sticky, it was so nasty. got stuck to the comb, it got stuck to the tub, it got stuck to the curtain. If you touch, don't touch the wall, don't touch your clothes. I mean, it was a mess, right, this black glue. And, um, And the chemical of it smells so bad that it smells like, I mean, this is really foul. It has a foul smell, very strong as well. So when you think of that, you're like, okay, so if I put this on my skin, if I put this on my scalp, if that's the largest organ is your skin, you know, you know your skin absorbs everything you put on it. And if this thing is sticking to the bathtub and like tar, what is it doing to the pores of the scalp? That's right. That's right. I just could not fathom. I started to, and, and it's funny because I've dropped some glue on my skin. And when I'm wiping it off, I'm like literally trying to take the paper towel, trying to dig in my pore. If I have like an open pore or anything like that, because you can, I mean, it's like tar, it's thick, it's thick, right? Okay. And it's just, it's hard to get out. So I started to worry because my hair loss was only getting worse because every time I was taking out the glue, even though I was using the, the shampoo, I'm, I'm sorry, I was using the conditioner, I was using the um, glue remover, I was using all these things that I was supposed to use, oil, I was using all these things. It still was not really removing the residue, and it was still hot and breakage coming out. So then I started to say to myself, well, let me learn how to weave my hair, how to braid my hair, and, you know, I knew how to braid. I said, well, let me try to weave my hair, and hopefully that'll give it a break from the glue. That was it. As I did that, I noticed that my hair started to grow. Um, I started to really get more into oils. I was a, a little kid. I would go to the store, beauty supply store, and get the little capsules. They were so cute. 
uh, and I would just use these things. And I would test it. I'd be like, wow, that one's making my hair grow. Or, right. you know, I would I would test it. And um, and then I would recommend stuff to my to my clients or my friends. Um, and so for me, I just think it's so important for us to educate ourselves and uh, for stylists that are in the industry to continue to educate ourselves right. so that when our clients come to us with this emergency 911 situation, we can better service them and give them everything they need. Right. Well, and, that, and that's just the thing, Nancy. That's what makes what you do so important because we don't really have that go-to person within our community, within the black and brown community. Like most, yeah. you know, dermatologists, um, are white and they don't, our hair is just a completely different texture. It's a completely different, um, journey of, of caring yeah. for it. And a lot of people don't realize it's a two step process. It's the medical side of alopecia, getting the, the, the disease to calm down because it's an inflammation and treating that on the medical side. And then the aftercare where that's where you come in and mm-hmm. people don't realize it's really a yeah. two step and it's like a lifelong, uh, journey you know, um, right. of, of treating and, and providing that aftercare, you know, we, we quickly want to yeah. jump back in and do our hair the way we normally do, but it's completely changing, uh, the lifestyle of how we, um, how we braid our hair, that what we use in our hair, you know, the stress and the pulling on our hair, um, you know, and, and most black sisters out there know the tighter, the more you could slick it back and the tighter you get, the tighter you can make it, especially a ponytail, is supposed to be better. But right. can you explain the effects that that has on our hair follicles over time? Yes, yeah, so definitely, um, you know, our hair type is very different. You're very correct for saying that because um, we do, we style our hair differently. And just like you said, you know, pulling it, braiding it, mm-hmm. that's the way that we, a lot of times, if your hair is natural, you'll, braid it up and you know that's where you control it and get a break so you can just be a kid or have a great uh, busy week and not have to worry and work with your hair right mm-hmm. but a lot of times when we braid the hair we try to we're taught you catch every hair get it as tight as you can and what we don't realize for right. those people who are like probably just getting started um or just don't know that when you do that you can cause permanent damage and, and scarring to the follicle. That's right. And then that's when you get traction alopecia um, and you get, um, you know, just your follicles get inflammated. Inf- they, um, they get swollen and, and the hair is not able to grow through it. And it's just a lot that goes with it, right? So definitely braiding the hair, being gentle, using a moisturizer when you braid the hair. You know, you're braiding hair, you're twisting hair, that that can make hair break. And so um, moisturizing hair, it helps it to be more flexible, more pliable. And so when you braid, it's, it's more gentle on the hair. The hair is able to take those waves, those patterns, those turns and those twists. But if you don't know that, you wouldn't, you know, you won't know. That's right. That's um, right. You know, there's a lot of other steps. Like when I do my classes, I normally do that with my students. I give them the steps of what they should do to the hair before they even start. Mm. And may and ways and uh, products and um, supplies, things that I use to help relieve stress and to help um, them still have a natural look. But again, relieve stress because 
the ultimate goal is you, you want the hair to grow and you want it to look uh, to be healthy. And the, the aftermath of that, like bypass of that, is to look fabulous. So it happens to look fabulous. That's great. But we care about the health of the hair and making sure that, uh, that we maintain that integrity and keep the hair healthy and safe and all that good stuff, the hair and the scalp. That's right. And we, we're going to dive in deeper at a later date um, about the different types of alopecia and the different things that we can do and just to really educate those. And, you know, in a way, it's crazy. You know, yeah. the incident that happened at the at the Oscars, it's like, you know, that's one thing. But to me, I think that it broke the door down to start these types of conversations um, about mm-hmm. alopecia and to yeah. really start that talk, really start the topics and the conversations so we can start funding and start getting the research and to let all the sisters out there know that you do not have to uh, endure this or struggle uh, with this disease alone in silence because it's the most devastating uh, situation to deal with. And it's, it's so, you know, and we're going to dig in further with that, but I just really wanted to, uh, you know, thank you for coming on board with, you know, uh, giving us a a brief moments of your time today uh, to talk about alopecia and, um, and it's, you know, a couple of tips out there that we can do as, as black women to care for and treat our hair and those who are suffering, you're not alone, you know? Right. You're not alone. Definitely not alone. There's people that care about you and know exactly what you're, um, going through. Some, some, uh, some people have been through it. Many people have been through it. That's right. And again, you know, you're not alone and you don't have to suffer in silence and, and just uh, be in shame and all of that. There's options. There's things, um, you know, this is not new to us, the professionals in the field of cosmetology. This is not new to us, the ones who are trained in the area of hair loss. Certified. In the field of cosmetology, trained and certified in in that area. Yes. So, um, you're not alone. You're an angel. There are people. (laughs) There are people out here. You are an angel, uh, Nancy. You you really are saving grace to so many women out there, um, you know, struggling. So we're going to definitely. We want to share hope. We want to share hope. um, And again, that they're not alone. We are here. That's right. So thank you so much, Nancy, for your time um, and coming on with us. And we're going to dive deeper at a later date. But thank you so much. And I I appreciate you, my sister. Enjoy the show. Absolutely. Bye-bye. So as you heard, that was Nancy V. Brown. Um, she is a master stylist, uh, Envy My Hair. Uh, she has the academy. She has a, a, a coach speaking, life coach. Um, she's into ministry. She really takes a holistic approach. And she really is, you know, dominating the field when it comes to, you know, the the, the master styling of hair, but also indulging in that medical side. And that's so important um, for people out there who are suffering um, with this disease or any other further hair loss um, to have someone who is medically trained, uh, medically certified, has been in the business for 30 plus years, that there is hope out there for women who are struggling. So, you know, after all the pandemonium that was happening this week, and I really just, it, it was put into my heart to speak about that because there's a lot of people you know, that really do not understand the effects of alopecia and how it's a lifelong journey um, of, of battling. You know, we're, we're, you're trying to hang on to every strand of your hair and it is just, 
your hair is the one thing that identifies um, us as being beautiful, uh, especially a woman of color. Um, so it was just really important for me to, to, to indulge on that a little bit and um, get the conversations going. But she will be back online on the air to speak with us at a later date in further detail. So we're going to um, shift gears a little bit um, after this quick break. Up close. So things has been going on. There's a lot of things going on um, at the the state and local level. We got, you know, different elections going to be taking place in October. I don't know if, if any of you listeners out there are, you know, staying in tune with who is going to be the next governor. Who is going to be the next lieutenant governor? These are, start, you know, people, people, pay attention. Start getting involved and paying attention to who is throwing their name in the ring um, to, you know, carry on the torch. You know, Charlie Baker is stepping down. Um, and who is going to hold that torch? Who is going to, you know, take on the ranks of uh, governor? Uh, I know the district attorney, uh, Rachel Rollins, stepped down to um, – become even a bigger prominent force uh, within our criminal justice system. And so we have a new uh, DA, interim DA, in her place. Is he doing a good job with that? I, I know we have um, the new uh, governor, uh, excuse me, the new mayor of Boston. You know, how has she been doing on the job? What are, what's what's going on out there? Are, you, are people paying attention? You know, I know the election election year in November seems to be light years away, but it's not. I think this is the time for people to really start engaging uh, what that means, what that looks like, and who's going to be, you know, in the ring. Who, who's going to sit in that seat and be the voice for us um, and our communities? And it's just really important uh, for us to start really paying attention to what's going on. Further in the news, um, have anybody heard what's going on with Brittany Griner? What has been going on with Brittany Griner? Um, I don't hear her name coming up at all. Um, it's a little disheartening, uh, especially the fact that she, you know, was, she's a very talented WNBA player, and um, she's being held in Russia. She's awaiting trial. Um, and... I haven't heard much of what's going on. We know that, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin plans to use this as a uh, political tool and to kind of leverage the, um, the United States of America to kind of push Biden's hand. As you know, there's uh, swift sanctions being given to Russia um, that was decided by uh, NATO. And there's been many countries that jumped on board um, across the world that is really... Uh, throwing in those sanctions against Russia and uh, Vladimir Putin because of his invasion um, in Ukraine. So this is a big deal. This is really a big deal. What is happening with, 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 with Brittany? Um, we know that she is a two-time Olympic gold medalist, and she's being held for drug smuggling. Um, and it basically was marijuana oil. Uh, or cannabis oil, if you will, which we know here in Massachusetts is legal. But over in Russia, um, she could be held up in prison for up to 10 years. Um, she could be held. 
And what does that mean for our sanctions or, or how we proceed going forward? Um, are we doing enough uh, to, to bring her home? You know, this is a, a, we're right dead smack in the middle of a global crisis. And um, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I know um, there, there's a lot of things that he can come down on her. Brittany is, um, is a, came out being a lesbian and gay. And I know that's something that is, you know, in Russia, they're, they're anti-LGBTQ. Um, and they, there's a lot of discrimination uh, from Russia against um, that community of people, which, of course, that's legal and accepted, accepted here, um, but not so much in Russia, and that there's being talks that that could be another uh, situation that could be held against Brittany um, because she is um, a part of that community. So, it, you know, these are the things that we need to ask ourselves. These are the conversations um, that are not being held. Um, and where's the outrage? Where's the outrage for Britney's um, release? Where's the, 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 the groups, the, the WNBA groups, the um, Equality Task Force groups? Where's, where's all these groups? Where's all these protests? What is happening? You know, did we forget, you know, um, in the midst of this crisis of what's happening um, in Ukraine and, and around the world? Um, but how can... A U.S. basketball star just vanish. How could she vanish? Um, and w- what's happening with that? You know, um, we have to do more to protect our citizens uh, who were taken. I know that there was just a um, President Biden's cabinet just declared a state of emergency for any Americans over in that region uh, to quickly and swiftly evacuate um, from the country, but what is more is being done for Brittany? Where is the outcry or the help for Brittany? It's not being spoken about. And, you know, as you know, as we always do here on Up Close with Monique McNeil, it is my job to pull back the layers and to speak about the things that are not being spoken about. And Brittany is not being spoken about. She is not being spoken about what is happening to her um, over there, you know, what can we as Americans do? What can we as activists, um, back here do, uh, for Brittany? And, um, it's, it's quite devastating. The much larger conflict between the U.S. and Russia. There's mounting concern about the detention of Brittany Griner, WNBA basketball star who also plays in Russia. She's been detained there since mid-February, and yesterday a Russian court extended her detention to late May. Amna Navaz has the story. Judy, Brittany Griner was arrested at a Moscow airport, allegedly for possession of vape cartridges with cannabis oil, which is illegal in Russia. Griner plays for a Russian team during the WNBA's off-season to earn more money. Her detention wasn't disclosed for weeks, and U.S. officials have not been allowed to see her. Griner is one of dozens of Americans held by other governments, even as this week saw the release of two British citizens from Iran, charity worker Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe and retired civil engineer Anoushe Ashuri, freed after more than five years of detention. 
Joining us to examine all of this is Jason Rezaian, columnist for the Washington Post. He was unjustly imprisoned in Iran for 544 days before his release in 2016. Jason, welcome to the News Hour. Thank you so much for, for being with me. us. My pleasure, Amma. So, uh, we should ask first about the case of these two British nationals. We've been seeing pictures they're sharing of their reunions with family, Nazanin's reunion with her young daughter, Gabriella, as well. What should we understand about why they were released and why now? Well, first of all, neither of these people should have been arrested in the first place. They're completely innocent of any crimes. Uh, the same goes for other UK citizens, American citizens, Germans and French who are being held right now by Iran. Uh, the timing of their releases is, is interesting because the US and the UK had been trying to negotiate together to, to get their, um, their people being held hostage uh, by Iran released um, simultaneously. Um, it appears that, that the UK broke away from, from that and, and decided to do this on their own, found a way to repay a historical debt to Iran, which seems to have been the impetus for arresting these people in the first place, even though they had nothing to do with it. Seems that unfreezing involved uh, millions of dollars that went to the Iranian government. But there's different nations here and different circumstances. But are there lessons that the U.S. government should be pulling from what happened in that case with Iran that the U.S. government could apply to help release Brittany Griner from Russia? Yeah, I've been arguing for a long time that what is often termed as wrongful detention or un unjust detention is really just foreign governments taking um, U.S. citizens hostage. Uh, in the case of Brittany Griner, it, it's hard to know if the allegations against her um, have merit, but even if they do, um, it's a it's a major red flag that she's been denied consular access, and then just in the last 48 hours or so, her detention extended through May. These are all ways that authoritarian governments use to uh, present a veneer of a judicial process uh, while they unjustly hold uh, Americans or citizens of other uh, liberal democracies uh, as political leverage against our governments here in the West. So I'm worried that that's the case here. And I think that the, the approach that the U.S. government has taken to, uh, to many of these uh, similar cases, whether it's Iran, Russia, China, Venezuela, which are, these are the most common um, offenders of this particular kind of crime, has been rather a flat-footed approach and one that hasn't got us quick results of freeing Americans who are uh, imprisoned for no other crime than holding uh, an American passport. Jason, you've been among those calling attention to the timing of this, right? Brittany was detained in Moscow just days before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now you have the U.S. and Russia at a major point of tension, and Russia has in its custody a major WNBA superstar. What about that? I've heard a lot of people saying that this approach that that the WNBA and her family and her representatives are taking and are trying to be quiet about it so that um, that this can be resolved quietly. How do you resolve uh, quietly the um, apparent abduction of a major international celebrity uh, by by a foreign government that we're uh, in a in a confrontation with, uh, frankly? So I think that, that, the, that the circumstances around trying to get her out already very complicated, uh, exacerbated by uh, the fact that the U.S. has been putting sanctions on the Russian government and, and officials close to it. Um, and so, you know, I think this notion that we should keep this under wraps 
Uh, I've been following cases of Americans detained in other countries since the day that I was released. And I've never seen an instance where keeping it quiet um, was the, the, the way to go. Once the Russian state media presented a picture, a mugshot of Brittany Griner and announced the alleged allegations in her case, uh, the cat's out of the bag. This is a matter of public record and concern at this point. And we should be talking about it and we should be shining a light on it for no other reason than uh, her treatment will probably uh, be much worse if we don't talk about her. Um, and I think the, the, the fact is that um, the likelihood of a, of a long detention, whether it's weeks or months, seems pretty clear. Jason, what should we know about what kind of pressure, what kind of tactics the U.S. government is probably putting into place right now? I mean, I should mention among those sanctioned in Russia are some very rich men who are involved with this basketball team she plays for. Could that be a way to try to apply some pressure and get her freed? I think that there's always multiple ways of going about this. Um, you know, hiring a lawyer and going through the official judicial legal process of a country uh, is one step that you have to take. But there are all sorts of uh, other ways that, that the U.S. government has to reach out to uh, brokers within the, the Russian regime uh, to apply potential sanctions pressure, as you indicated, uh, and, and also to, to kind of seek out what it is that, that the Russians might want, uh, uh, what, what kind of demands that they have. I'm not saying you necessarily give in to those, but you should at least know what they are. What do you think is the best case scenario for Brittany Griner right now? And the best case scenario is that, uh, you know, sometime in the coming days, uh, the, the charges are dropped and, and she comes home. Um, I, I would love nothing more than to see that happen. Uh, I think it's possible, but I don't think that that's at, at all likely. We'll certainly be following in the days ahead. Jason Resign from The Washington Post, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Anna. Well, as you can see, not enough people are really speaking about Britney, and we have to get the word out there. We there's a lot of grave concerns um, and surrounding her cap her capture, and her um, her detention over there in Russia. And um, more needs to be done. We need to really say her name, Britney, Britney, Britney. People need to be speaking. Where's the activist groups? Where's you know the LGBTQ community? Where is, you know, the legislative um, activists who really rally around these types of issues? Um, we cannot allow, you know, her to just vanish or her uh, to be used in vain. Um, so more needs to be done with that. And, um, yeah, we'll be right back. Up close. Up close. Yeah, 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 yeah. With Monique McNeil on WUTY 97.9 FM. So we're going to switch gears again um, to some other important uh, situations that are happening right now uh, in Ukraine and take a listen to what, you know, is happening, um, what, what's going on over there in Ukraine at this time. Um, we know that, you know, there's a lot going on. Um, you know, I know that the president, Valensky, really, you know, asked Americans to kind of put up this no-fly zone, um, and that was unable to happen. Um, so what's been going on over there? Have people really been paying attention um, to the scrutiny that is happening right now um, across, the, uh, across the world? 
Uh, let's let's take a listen here. Joining us now is Pentagon Press Secretary and retired Rear Admiral John Kirby. Admiral Kirby, we appreciate you making time to be with us uh, this evening. Uh, the Kremlin today is pushing back on a claim from U.S. intelligence that President Putin's aides aren't being honest with him about what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. Tell me about the concern you've got, if that's true. If Vladimir Putin is not receiving honest battlefield intelligence from his advisors, what does that mean? Well, one thing it could mean is that once he does become fully informed, he might overreact. I mean, he's already escalated this con this conflict. You don't have to look any further than the, the dreadful images that are coming out of places like Mariupol and Kyiv to see how hard he continues to strike uh, at Ukrainian citizens and the Ukrainian cities. Uh, so he could maybe overreact if, he, if, if he's not being fully informed. We don't know what he's going to do when he finds out the, the full scope uh, of his military's failures inside. Ukraine. The second thing that's concerning, uh, disconcerting for us is what would what does this mean for the negotiating table? If he's not fully informed about how poorly they are doing on the ground, uh, then it could definitely affect the negotiating tactics at the table and the degree to which he's able, even if, even if he's willing, the degree to which he's able to negotiate in good faith with the Zelensky government. Okay, so that's one valid concern. Is he going to a negotiating table or are his people going there with correct information? But you've also been particular in describing Russia's movements in and around Kyiv as repositioning as opposed to a de-escalation, which is what uh, right. the Russian negotiators suggested the other day in Istanbul. What's the latest intelligence that you can tell us about, uh, about troops and what they're doing around Kyiv? Are they, is there any indication that they're repositioning versus pulling back and refocusing on eastern Ukraine? What we have seen is a small number, uh, less than about 20 percent of what we as, uh, as assess is their assembled force around Kyiv moving away from the city, more towards the north. It's not exactly cl clear where they're going to go, how long they're going to be there, or what the ultimate purpose is. But what we don't believe is that he's planning to send them home, because the majority of the troops that he still has around Kyiv are still there in Kyiv. Now, they're in defensive positions. They're not moving on the city, but the city's still is coming under airstrikes and missile strikes every single day. So what we think he's going to do is refit these troops, resupply them, and put them back into Ukraine uh, for offensive operations somewhere else. Now, again, we don't know exactly where. We don't know exactly when. All we can do is go by our other assessment that the Russians are trying to pri prioritize that Donbass region, the eastern part of the country. So it's possible that some of these troops will just simply be moved from Kyiv over to the Donbass to try to reinforce their offensive operations there. There's also new reporting. You know, a month ago, uh, we, we had word about uh, a fire at a, a nuclear uh, plant uh, in, in Zaporizhia. Now, there's this is a massive concern all around Europe, uh, not the least Ukraine. There's reporting today that Russia's pulling back from Chernobyl because of radiation yeah. exposure. Uh, you seem to suggest at today's briefing that it's not necessarily radiation exposure uh, that might be causing them to pull back. What, what more can you tell us about that? Well, what we think is that uh, we do sense, uh, assess that some of their troops are leaving Chernobyl. Uh, the general assessment is that this is all part of, again, this repositioning effort. We have no indication that it's a, that there's a radiation problem or a health hazard at this time. Look, we're going to continue to watch this and monitor it as, as best we can. But our best estimate, our best assessment at this point is that this is part of his repositioning effort, the ability to take troops out of some area and then move them into another area.
Today, the head of Britain's GCHQ, which is the British equivalent of America's NSA, said that some Russian troops are refusing orders. Some might be sabotaging yeah. their own equipment. Uh, and there was one report of shooting down their own aircraft. I guess my question to you is, uh, do you understand whether that dynamic is going on amongst Russian for, uh, forces? And does the Pentagon believe this is happening uh, uh, wide scale? Or is this something that, that, that is, is largely very specific and isolated? Yeah, I can't confirm every uh, item in in that uh, that uh, that British reporting there about uh, about shooting down aircraft and and everything that they put in there. That said, uh, Ali, what we have seen uh, is poor unit cohesion, poor morale, poor leadership. We've got uh, plenty of anecdotal evidence uh, that at times and at places uh, Russian soldiers have simply given up. They've simply walked away from the fight. Uh, that uh, that they have in, in some cases uh, uh, actually sabotage their own vehicles so that they would run out of fuel and not be able to replace that fuel. Uh, we, we know that they have had morale and unit cohesion problems born, we think, uh, largely out of the fact that it's a conscript force. They're draftees. These are young, young men who, in many cases, had no idea that they were going to be invading another country. They thought they were going on a training exercise, and they clearly weren't fully prepared and ready uh, for actual combat. So we know they're having problems like that. They're also having leadership issues, commanding control, the, not only the ability of their generals to talk to one another, but the willingness to talk to one another and to coordinate their operations between, say, air and ground. There's very little bit of that joint effectiveness that you would expect from a modern military these days. Admiral, I, I just want to explore this a little more with you because of your uh, long military expertise. Tell me about that, uh, that distinction in morale where we're seeing these Ukrainian troops who, going into this thing, did not look like they were well-equipped to take on one of the largest armies in the world. But the, 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 the morale of those troops seems to be very different from the morale of the Russian troops. Tell me how that actually plays out uh, when, when you're commanding troops. Yeah, morale is, is is not to be underestimated in a military unit. Uh, it, it can be an, a, a terrific force multiplier, and by that it, I mean it can it can actually add exponentially to a unit's effectiveness on the field of battle or at sea uh, on on warships. Uh, the way uh, a unit feels about itself, about its effectiveness, its competency, about their, the teammates, about themselves, uh, all of that can have a, a huge impact on, on effectiveness and efficiency uh, in battle and in combat. Uh, we're not seeing that on the Russian side. And we have plenty of anecdotal evidence, as I said, that, uh, that they're not fighting well, that they're not fully informed. They're even having trouble still feeding their troops and fueling their vehicles. I mean, there's a lot of problems that the Russians have caused on themselves. On the Ukrainian side, however, morale is very high. Now, they are, too. They're taking losses. They're suffering. They're watching their friends and their families have to leave. They're seeing their cities destroyed, and, and yet this has really fired them up. They've got an esprit de corps. They're getting the weapons and the systems that they need to fight back effectively, and they're using those weapons. And they've been very agile, very, uh, very nimble on the battlefield, choosing when and where and how they're going to defend and how they're going to strike in, in very, very devastating ways for the Russian military. Let's talk about those weapons that they're getting. The U.S. has already supplied Ukraine with a lot of lethal weaponry, more arriving every day. But if this war grinds on for months, is the Pentagon willing to and in a position to continue supplying Ukraine's, Ukraine with weapons uh, to fight Russia at the current pace that we are doing? 
President Biden has been very clear that we're going to continue to support Ukraine's ability to defend itself as long as we can and as fast as we can. And you're right. There is material arriving even as you and I are speaking, and that's coming on the, the, the last package that the, the president approved, the $800 million security package that he approved uh, not, just a little bit more than a week ago. There's already been a half a dozen or so shipments of that material getting into the region. We're going to work to get it into the hands of the Ukrainians as fast as we can. And I would add that while we're focused rightly on the security assistance, the material, we also need to remember the training. For the last eight years, the United States, uh, Great Britain, mm -hmm. Canada, other allies have been devoting a lot of training uh, into Ukrainian armed forces to help them use this material. So it's not just about the stuff, it's about the way they use the stuff and how they know how, how to use these weapon systems. And that came that came at, uh, at, at a great effort by, by so many allies to help train them over the last eight years. The U.S. intelligence on this has been fairly accurate since even before this invasion started. Um, there was one thing, though, that that uh, that was an estimate that it would it would not be long if Russia threw everything it had and all of those troops that it had lined up. This would end sooner than than it it has. We're now in the sixth week of this war, and one of the yeah. enduring mysteries is the airspace above Ukraine. Uh, for outside right. observers, they've been curious as to why the Russian air force has not been able to achieve air superiority. What's your what's your take on this? One of the reasons is is because of how nimble the Ukrainians have been with their air defense systems. They have both short and long range air defense systems. They're using them very effectively uh, and and quite efficiently. Uh, they're they're being very careful about how they're defending their skies, and they have been able to make it very difficult for Russian pilots to fly inside Ukrainian airspace. In fact, most airstrikes that you're seeing, the damage that you're seeing, most of those airstrikes are actually emanating and never coming, and, and the aircraft are never leaving uh, Russian airspace or Belarusian airspace. They're not venturing into Ukrainian airspace, and if they do, uh, they're not staying very, very long. And of course, a lot of the airstrikes are missile strikes that are being launched from, uh, from uh, mm -hmm. airfields and from sites inside Russia or Belarus. The Ukrainians have been very, very effective uh, in how they're trying to defend their skies. We assess that uh, the skies are contested. Here's the other thing, though. We're also working with other allies and partners who have long-range air defense systems that we know the Ukrainians know how to use, like the S-300, and we're trying to work with them to see if they can provide some of those systems uh, to help replenish the stocks of the Ukrainians. Admiral, to the extent that uh, Russia has said and might be uh, re, uh, re, you know, refocusing some of its efforts on eastern Ukraine, which is where this all started, what are your concerns about that? Well, this, look, this is an area that's been—it's been a hot war for eight years, Ali. I mean, this is a, uh, this is a, a piece of ground that uh, that Russia has long coveted and long wanted. Uh, we think they certainly overextended themselves in the early weeks of this conflict, attacking on multiple lines of axes: north, south, east trying to take the capital city, and they've realized that they're not going to do that. So now it looks like they're going to redouble their efforts in the Donbass region, which they've been fighting over now for eight years. It's unclear whether this is a negotiating tactic. Mr. Putin just wants to get some more leverage at the table because he's got more ground in the eastern part of the country, or whether that is, in fact, now a more limited goal he's trying to achieve. Just get the Donbass region, get that land bridge to Crimea, and call it a day. We're just not sure where, where they intend to go on this. But one thing we know for sure 
You, there are lots of Ukrainian forces in that part of the country, and they are, are still there, and they're still fighting very, very hard. The Russians have not been able to take that Donbass region. Now, we'll see if they're going to redouble their efforts, if they're going to add reinforcements. We think that that's what's in their minds. But believe me, the Ukrainians are going to—they've made it very clear, not just in word but in deed, that they're going to continue to fight for that part of their country. Retired Rear Admiral John Kirby from the Pentagon, we appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us, sir. Yes, sir. Good to be with you. Real cowboys. The Ukrainians are going to fight and fight and fight for their country, and they're not going to give up. And as you just heard, the momentum um, is, is really shifting um, here. And it's, we've got a long way to go. And we, we have to remain vigilant and, and to remain hopeful um, in the work that's, that is, is going on over there. And our hearts and thoughts and prayers go out to those who, you know, continue to fight uh, for, the, for the right of freedom and uh, for justice. And, um, you know, I, I'm really set in awe um, of the unity, of the unification that is really happening uh, throughout the world, and the um, the coming together of, of many different countries um, in support of Ukraine, in support of NATO, and the support of democracy and freedom, and it is quite calming and uh, humbling to see all these countries come together, um, because out of many, we really are one. And when we stand up together and to percent of justice and democracy, um, you get a flea of countries behind you. And uh, it's, it's quite nice to see. So uh, shifting gears once again. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about the first black woman uh, to the Supreme Court, the first one to ever be nominated and what that was like. Up close. Up close. So what does that mean, you know, <laughs> to be nominated to the courts, uh, the first black Supreme Court nominee? And if I don't know if any of you guys watched um, the Senate hearings of her confirmation, it was quite brutal uh, the way that they treated her and you know, the way that our, uh, the Republicans, uh, with their questioning and it was quite, you know, I was really quite taken back, uh, in awe on some of the questioning. I, I was quite disgusted, uh, with some of the, the leverage of questioning, um, the attempting to back her in a corner, um, uh, in regards to some of her, uh, previously decided cases and uh, what, what really became disgusting is when they were trying to um, do, uh, they, they were trying to get the records of children who were uh, involved in sexual assault cases um, to be turned over and make public. And you know, <laughs> when we when we go against what is what is within the rights of victims, um, just to try to prove a point or try to diminish someone's character. Um, and we're, we're, you, we're willing to use children and their right to have uh, those, those records remain sealed and private um, is quite disgusting. It's quite disgusting. 
as I was watching that as a mother, um, and as a woman and as an American, I, I was quite disgusted that they would even entertain the idea or they had the audacity to even prop their mouths to ask for these records that uh, was enclosed child private information. And they were trying to disclose that uh, and make it public. It, it was just awful. Uh, to watch. And I just sat here thinking to myself, I've witnessed several different confirmation hearings in the past. I've witnessed, you know, the confirmation hearing of, um, what was it? Two other justices that was, um, you know, put on the bench and never did I hear this type of anger or this type of aggression. And as if none of her None of her expertise or her professionalism for the past how many years didn't amount to anything. And it, and it was quite disgusting um, to watch this woman sit there and uh, basically be questioned in a way that uh, was precalculated and malice. And it didn't seem like they were quite interested in really getting to the, the nitty-gritty if she would be the best candidate for the job, but trying to basically humiliate her and diminish her professionalism and her um, expertise as as a uh, judge as a judge. So that was quite awful to see, um, and it was just reminded me of all the hard work, you know, that has to be done, and the hard work that must continue to be done, and how, you know, nothing is ever given that we have to stand up. Stay vigilant, stay strong and focused on the things that matter. And, you know, it it, it makes you wonder when people go so hard to take something from you or when people go so hard to diminish uh, its capacity or to um, take away all the positives, it really speaks to how pivotal and how important and how – inferior people are um, to have a woman, a woman of color um, in that capacity. And, you know, as she was being questioned, I just kept praying for her and thinking about, you know, all the the double standards that there are to be a woman in this capacity, to be a woman of color, to, you know, constantly have to fight and refight and, you know, um, to get that respect to get that self-respect to say, I am worthy to sit here amongst the great. I am great. I've accomplished these things. This is who I am. And it goes to show the more hard, the, the harder people go to take something away and to diminish its existence speaks values to what it means and, and the importance of it to actually be applied. And that that's what I've learned. Um, over my course in of my educational career and my, my own professional career. The harder somebody goes for me not to be a part of this, the harder they don't want me to have it is the harder I'm going to go harder to get it. And I was just, you know, really um, taken back by her, her, her poise and her grace and her calmness uh, throughout this uh, ordeal. And it was a lot. It was a lot. 
it was a lot to watch. The secret's out. It was really a lot to watch. Um, somebody go through, you know, something like that and have their whole career questioned. It, it was definitely um, more than uh, I think any of us really anticipated to, to, to see. So you came and so you checked out the AMZ. Definitely uh, something that we have to be cognizant of and remember, you know, when we go against, you know, we're going all against all odds here. You know, we, we, we really have to prove and reprove ourselves um, in this capacity, but we have to stay strong. We have to stay vigilant and we have to keep our eyes on the prize. And I think that it's important for us to uplift one another, to uplift all the sisters out there, you know, to, to uplift all the women out there and to, to remind each other to keep going, keep going and speak great things upon one another because we need one another to lean on, to, to really get the job done. And, you know, in the midst of adversity, it's even more so important for us to remember why we're here, remember what's at stake, and remember that we have a place here too. And this goes for all capacities, especially, you know, of women. We, you know, th- this is our year. This is our year. And I am just so thankful that Biden has really set that stage um, of inviting women onto his his cabinet and putting women in these leadership roles. Never have we ever seen this done to this type of degree before. And I'm I'm very proud of our president for doing that, for keeping his word and for putting women in those roles that we've never seen before. And um, I think that is just telling of who he is as a president. And, you know, the fact that he kept his word. A lot of times we forget things, <laughs> you know, in the midst of other things. But he, he definitely has kept his word. And um, I advise all you guys to, to really stay in tuned into what's happening. Um, this is a very po- important political year. And, you know, coming up in November. And we have to make sure that the people we put in those seats, the people who are going to, you know, take over Charlie Baker's job, do they have what it takes to get the job done. And it's about showing up and showing out to these different events, questioning them, make them accountable. It's about taking accountability. Really write down the things that, you know, wasn't able to be addressed. I know I have a few things in mind myself, and I will be at those events front and center, and I will be heard. I will demand whoever is going to be the next candidate to answer these questions because I have a right to do so, and so don't all of you. And I, I just really hope that you guys are um, cognizant to that. And um, I, I really thank you for your time. And please stay tuned for, uh, for the next time. And um, God bless. Up close. Up close. Yeah, 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 yeah. With Monique McNeil on WUTY 97.9 FM. Right after.